You know, if you were to ask me what is more difficult, preaching a sermon with notes or preaching the children's sermon, Brian by far has the more difficult job. And um, I watched it from the front row. That was a, that was a bold move, Cotton. I, um, but, you know, we, we know now, we know for Brian and Tasha's uh, baby gift, we know what they need. We're going to get them a snake. Right, Tasha? That's what? No? Okay. I retract the statement. Uh, turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and just put your finger there. Uh, this morning, we're continuing in our series called Exponential. Um, as we track through the book of Acts to see how God multiplied the church. And just as a recap, I want to remind you where we've been to date. Um, Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. He has now ascended to the Father. And last Sunday, Brian turned us to really what is one of the greatest days, if not the greatest day in all of redemptive history, as the Holy Spirit was now gave birth to the New Testament church. And as you know, this was no ordinary day. We learned last week that there was a, first a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and then from there, this, this something like fire fell from heaven. The crowd began speaking in these tongues in their own language, declaring, we're told by God's word, the mighty acts of God. This was an unprecedented day, and it left the people trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. You know, what do we do when we find ourselves in a situation that we can't quite make sense of? You ever been in that place where maybe you're leaving that party or leaving that, that day of work and you call home, call that friend and you say, man, can you help me make sense of this? What, what in the world just happened? You know, I think often the, the way that we as humans try to figure that out is we'll go to the only reference point that we know, right? The closest thing that we can find to help us understand and define the situation. And so it would make sense that the people would shout out then, they are filled with new wine. Because somebody was apparently at the bars the night before. They're drunk. That was the explanation, and that's where we left off last Sunday. So we come to our text this morning. Peter is among the crowd. He's heard this false accusation, and now he's going to stand to defend the faith. And this is by far one of every uh, preacher's dreams in the country. Because in this one sermon, Peter brings 3,000 people to faith. But before we jump in, here's what I want us to consider this morning as we look at this text. I want to ask you... um, What is it that makes a sermon worthy of your time? When you come here, what are you looking for from this pulpit? When you turn on a podcast of your favorite preachers, as followers of Christ, what should we be listening for? You know, I ask that because we live in a day of plenty, right? At, At any given hour, you can find whoever you want to reinforce whatever you believe, however you want to hear it. And just think about that. This morning in America, there will be 360,000 sermons preached in this hour. 360,000 sermons. You multiply that times 52 Sundays, that's 18 million sermons a year. But for what? What are we doing? And here's where I stick my neck out a bit. Um, Here's my plan. I want to evaluate this sermon while I preach a sermon on one of the best sermons in the history of the church as we ask that question together. So if you will, turn with me to Acts 2. We're going to read verses 14 to 38. If you judge it by a typical scripture reading, it's longer than usual. But if you judge it by Peter's sermon, it's short and sweet. So let's, 
Let's hear now God's word for this day. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we're all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. So last week I stumbled across quite the disturbing article um, in fact, it kind of ruined my mind. A woman by the name of Desiree Kelly woke up with a scratching noise in her ear. And at first she thought maybe this, this noise was something caused by her sleeping wrong, the wrong side of the bed. Maybe it was a buildup of earwax or fluid in the drum. But, but throughout the day, her ear got more and more distinct. It was muffled. So she booked a, an appointment at urgent care, and the, the doctor looked inside, but she too couldn't figure it out. So they decided, well, let's just flush your ear with water. And that's when it happened. To everyone's surprise, out crawled an itsy-bitsy spider. 
And now you're as disturbed as I am. You're welcome. Now, but hear me out. Words influence us, right? Story, a, a statement, a, a question, ideas move the world. And yet, as I said, never before in history have ideas moved so quickly to the crowds. And what we allow into our ears, literally or figuratively, really makes all the difference in the path that we live in, so it fits. It fits that Peter would stand to address this crowd in our lesson because somewhere in the midst of this miracle, somehow a lie has crawled into the ear of the masses. The enemy, either by distraction or distortion, and probably a little bit of both, has sown a falsehood that has the potential to muffle the ears in the midst of one of the greatest moments in the history of the church. And the rumor had its own fire. They're filled with new wine. This is just another drunken brawl. Nothing to see here. When was the last time you were misled or misdirected by an idea? And I would argue that today's metric of success has gotten so skewed that we, we focus far more on click rates and likes than we do on honesty and truth. And without thinking critically about what we're hearing, we could easily join the viral mess. See, but Peter won't have that, right? He's now filled with the Holy Spirit, and he stands up, and look at how deliberate he is in his address. First, we're told he lifted his voice. This same timid Peter of yesterday does a 180, and he's now shouting at the top of his lungs. And then with this bold passion, he cries out, let this be known to you, give ear to my words. These people are not drunk. It's 9 a.m., and that's how you know God's word has at least a bit of a sense of humor. It's the hour of prayer. You've lost your minds, Peter says. And from that pivotal point, what follows now is one of the most powerful spirit-filled sermons ever given. This is a sermon, arguably, by which all other sermons can be measured. And here's what I want us to see this morning. What made this proclamation so potent are four movements by which we should look for in every pulpit, including this one, and it looked like this. Number one, Peter's sermon first is bathed in the word of God. I'm going to show you this morning what I mean by that. Number two, by that truth, by God's word, Peter begins replacing the lies with the truth so that God's people can rightly interpret the situation around them. Three, he's abnormally bold. This same timid Peter has no problem now naming sin in the room and naming the reality of the bad news so that the people will hear the good news. And four, he gives the masses a call to action and leads the lost home. What should we be looking for in a sermon? First, let's start here. It begins with the word of God. If you look at the history of the church, and you were to note some of the, the strong points along the way, along the timeline, revivals, movements of the spirit, exponential growth. What was it that caused the momentum? Really, open up your history books with me. Now, today there are consultants making more than a living trying to answer that single question for churches across the West because we know that the Christian church is in decline and so we, we, we come up with these solutions. Well, maybe it's children's ministry. If we get the kids engaged, then the parents will follow, right? Which is an interesting thought. I'm, I'm all about children's ministry. We know most people find Jesus still today under the age of 10. 
But is that what caused revival? Or some say, no, 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 it's, it's got to be the youth ministry. Like those teenage years, if you get the kids and the students, then you keep them. And we got to hype it up, more party. And to be fair, I was a youth leader for almost two decades. I'm, I'm all about the party. Is that what caused revival? Others say, no, no, it's got to be the music. We, we got to keep it fresh. Whatever's on the radio, get it inside. More graphics on the screen. We got to hype that up too. Side note, you know what I love about our praise band? Our praise band is not at all about performance at Spring Hill, ever. Ever. I'm so grateful for how we open up with the, with the, the word of God. We open up with prayer together. But is that, is that what causes revival? The movement of the spirit? No, no, no. In the history of the church, none of those things from Peter's sermon onward were the primary mover of the people. What was it? It was the proclamation of the word of God. That is what brings salvation to adults, to children, to teens, to families. It is nothing less than God's word being spoken for the salvation of the people. And I love this. I wish it were mine. James Boyce, in one of his commentaries, he made this start clear. Just think about it. Luther, Calvin, Whitfield, Wesley, Edwards. If you don't know those five names, go, go Google them this week. Luther, Calvin, Whitfield, Wesley, Edwards. And then we can add to that Moody, Spurgeon, and Graham. What do they all have in common? What caused thousands to fall to their knees at the feet of these men? It was the proclamation of the word of God. See, what made this sermon so powerful is not that Peter offered 10 steps to a better life. It's not that he had some self-help from the pulpit, some feel-better motivational speech. We have plenty of those on the airwaves. No, no, no. What moved the hearts of men was that Peter opened God's word and with it, he proved the destitution of the people apart from knowing Christ. Which leads me then to my second point and that is by this word, Peter then helped the people rightly understand the otherwise unexplainable event around them. Let's not lose this, right? This was a miraculous day. People were all caught up in the signs and wonders. What, what were these tongues? What was that about? And this mighty rushing wind. And there was this anxiety among the crowd. What, what is this? What is taking place? But don't miss this. Peter somehow is standing ready with God's word in hand. Almost casually, like he just opens up and he goes, let's just open the book of Joel, chapter 2, 28 to 32. And yeah, listen to this. Here's the explanation. Um, they're not drunk. God's word tells us he's going to pour out the spirit in the last days. Yeah, no, folks. Um, welcome to the last days. We're, we're there. I wish we had time to get into the rest of all that prophecy. It's such a powerful connect. But here's the point I want to make this morning. Peter somehow knows God's word so deeply Think about this. From memory, he's pulling the scriptures to help the people comprehend an otherwise unexplainable event. Like aside from Peter laying this out, this is just another drunken morning in Jerusalem. And yet he's not just unpacking the prophet Joel. Then he takes the crowd to Psalm 16. That's the next part of the, the passage. Then he takes the crowd to Psalm 110, which becomes one of the famous, favorite scriptures in all the early church. And he's explaining every one of them entirely. See, I think we forget this point, right? Peter wasn't just a follower of Christ. As a follower of Christ, he was a student of God's word. 
Which begs the question, where did he get that from? Turn with, me to, turn with me to Luke 24 if you have your Bibles. Otherwise, we'll put this up on the screens. And I want you to see this, this pattern of what Jesus does with the disciples. Look at this in verse 17 of Luke 24. This is the road to Emmaus after Jesus has risen. And he comes to these disciples and he asks them, what are you discussing as you walk along this road? We're told they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? What things, Jesus asked. Well, about Jesus. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before all the people and God. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. But we had hoped he'd be the one to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's now the third day since this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't see his body. He said to them, how foolish, how slow you are to believe all the prophets and what they've spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter glory? And then here's my favorite part. Beginning again with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was in the scriptures concerning himself. See, even Jesus is bathed in God's word. See, it seems to me that when we are struggling to make sense of life, right? When we find ourselves at wit's end, we're not sure what in the world just happened or where we're supposed to go next. Could it be, could it be that what we really need is to return to God's word? To open up the scriptures, to have them show us the blind spots. And this isn't something that just happens from the pulpit. This is something we should all be in the practice of all the time. We need this every day of our lives. See, this is a word that moves God's people. We know that because the word and the spirit are inseparable. See, and I think then there's a question that needs to be asked in the room, and it's so important, I'm going to put it up on the screens, both for the church and the nation, but especially for Spring Hill, and it's this, do we offer what we know will help at the risk that it might not sell, or do we offer what we know will sell at the risk that it might not help? See, without God's word, we're just feasting on sugar and soda. Look at this from Robert Coleman. He said this, Jesus' concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men and women of the word whom the multitudes would follow. See, I've asked this before. I think it's worth us asking again, how are you growing in the experience of God's word? Who is discipling you right now? And in turn, who are you discipling? It's such a basic concept of our faith that Jesus initiated, and yet we so easily lose it. And I think the problem is we have never had more on the menu of self-help. We can pick up the parenting manuals and the marriage books and the social influences and the, the financial to-dos, and yet the God that we worship and the utensils of his transformation have never changed. His word is still the driver of his people. Peter opens the word and he expounds on it. Those are our first two things that I want us to see. Third in this sermon, he's surprisingly bold. Just think about how daring Peter is with this crowd. First, in verse 22, we're told he was, he tells the people Jesus was a man of signs and wonders. You know, I think few believed that at the time. And then he tells the crowd, you crucified him. Now that's when the shots are fired. 
And then he tells the crowd, and God raised him up. Well, now it's just outright offensive. This has become blasphemous to this crowd. And then he tells the crowd in verse 35, now he sits on the right hand of the Father and he's Lord of all. Now, Peter had to know the stakes here, right? I think one of the challenges in following Christ is standing firm, even if that makes you the unpopular voice in the room. Ask any preacher. Most will start with a manuscript here, and then they'll distill it all week long and go, I think we can get it just right here. This, this one might be too bold. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks of the reason of the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and respect. You know, I'll speak personally. I think that's a hard target to hit because we often vacillate to one of two sides of that spectrum, right? Either we're silent about the truth, that no one hears about it and we shrink from it. Or when we do speak, we get so defensive in our position, we forget the part about gentleness and respect. And yet somehow in this passage, Peter is perfectly gentle and bold. He has no problem condemning this crowd, not because he wants to condemn them, but because he's, in his heart, he wants their salvation. Look again in verse 23 at how he names the reality. Jesus this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. You killed him. I mean, you can almost feel the heartbreak here, right? Everyone within earshot, you crucified the Messiah. Do you understand the ramifications of what you've done? See, Peter's willing to name sin what it is because, again, he knows that until this crowd understands the bad news, they're never going to grasp the good news. And I think unless a person understands that they're drowning, how would they ever need a life preserver? You know, when we stop naming the hard realities in the room in life, it seems to me souls are at stake. And I don't know, I mean, in my own life, I feel like we do this with our children, right? Pacifying what we know are patterns of brokenness because it's easier to keep the peace we do this in politics because we want to see our side win and so we push the sin aside and we think, well, if the other side's playing dirty, we should too. We do this with each other because we'd rather keep that job or maintain that partnership or that relationship. And yet again, the first step in understanding the gospel is to understand our need for the gospel. What is it about this sermon that makes it so powerful? One, by the Holy Spirit, Peter's led to open God's word too. He takes the lie and replaces it with truth and rightly interprets the scene. Three, he's abnormally bold. Without apology, he's willing to name sin what it is. And four, he then calls on the people to come home. You know, I think what makes this such a powerful experience, at least as I read it, is not that the Holy Spirit moved the tongues of man and made wind, now, what, what made this so impactful is that mere men are now speaking the word of God. And you might call this Peter's spidey sense, right? Like he knew that though the Holy Spirit was moving among this crowd, the enemy was also right there infiltrating ears alongside with mockery. They're, they're filled with new wine. And yet Peter no longer cares what anyone thinks about him. Think about this. This the same Peter who denied Jesus he knows the sheep are at stake, the one Jesus called him to tend to. And so flush out their ears, he says, that they are not drunk. This is the fulfillment of Scripture. This was God's plan from the beginning. I once heard a story about a pastor 
who came across a sign on his morning walk, and I think I've shared this before. It's too good not to share again. It was a sign for a lost dog. It said, we're looking for our dog, Lucky. He's got three legs. He's blind in the left eye. He's missing his right ear. His tail's been broken off, but he's not astray. Um, He just lost one too many fights. It found cash reward. This pastor, as he was walking by, he read this sign and he thought, that dog's not lucky at all. That, That dog is cursed. Like, who would want such a mangy thing? The only reason that you'd call him lucky is that the owner is crazy enough to pay money to get him back. What makes a sermon worthy of our time? There is no more powerful message in this life than that of redemption for the mangy people in Jesus Christ. See, Peter is preaching salvation to the ones who killed Jesus. You talk about a filthy crowd. Man, if you ever thought you were too far gone from the Father, like, try that one out for size. This apostle is offering God's mercy to the murderers of the Messiah. To which the troubled crowd asked, what do we do? To which Peter replies, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. What makes a sermon worthy of your ear is that with God's word open, Peter helps us understand the place of our desperation so that just in that moment where we feel utterly lost, we find God's immeasurable grace again for the salvation of our souls. And so the question this morning is how will you preach that story with your life? How will you take that sermon and use it and replicate it and multiply it so that others might come to know the same story of grace and forgiveness too? Timothy Keller, God rest his soul, he once said that the difference between a bad sermon and a good sermon is preparation. But the difference between a good sermon and a great sermon is the Holy Spirit moving among the people. Let's ask God to move this morning in our midst. Will you pray with me? God, we confess when we have found those places in church land as we've made it about us, Lord. Or maybe even with the best of intentions, we've been so caught up and tickling the ears, Lord, that we've forgotten what true proclamation with our lives looks like in Jesus' name. So God, this morning, would you help us to return to the word that points us to you? Would you help us to take all of our other crazy ideas about what church should be or about who we should be or the lives that we should be living, God, and would you just return us to the basics? God, with the word open, would you replace the lies with truth? Would you make us a bold people who are somehow gentle in the spirit? And God, would you make our lives about bringing the lost home? And God, I just pray this morning, Lord, I'm not asking for 3,000, God, but maybe just one, Lord. I'm just asking, God, if there is one person in this room who doesn't know what it means to follow you, God, that they would take this opportunity right now and give their life to Jesus, that they would ask the same question, 
man, I'm broken, I am sinful, I am lost. What in the world should I do? And God, would we receive your word as Peter so boldly declared that we would repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. God, we thank you for that gift. Lord, we don't consider ourselves lucky. We consider ourselves blessed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.